This is the election wrap-up edition of Inside Politics, Election 2022. I'm Steve Harrison. The red wave that Republicans were hoping for nationwide was more like a red ripple. But in North Carolina, the GOP had a bit more success. There's Congressman Ted Budd's victory in the U.S. Senate race, of course. Republicans also did especially well in statewide judicial races. They won two states on the state Supreme Court to gain a 5-2 majority. Democrats had held a 4-3 majority. Republicans also won all four races for the Court of Appeals. And while Democrats kept Republicans from gaining a complete supermajority in the General Assembly, they won two seats on the state Supreme Court to gain a 5-2 majority. Democrats had held a 4-3 majority. Republicans also won all four races for the Court of Appeals. We're going to unpack all this and more with my colleagues, Jim Morrill and Tim Funk. Hey, guys. Hey, Hey, Steve. Steve. So let's start with the U.S. Senate race, of course. Um, That was the headline race. I was kind of looking through the numbers this morning. Um, A couple of things stood out to me. One, I think only four counties flipped uh, compared to the 2000 race from uh, blue to red. Uh, Four rural counties I think it was Anson, Nash, Wilson, and Pasquotank. Um, so it was in many ways kind of the same race we've had. It was the same replay of 2000 with just slightly bigger margins on the Republican side. That, that's sort of been a trend in North Carolina for the last 20 plus years. Only one Democrat has won a U.S. Senate race in, in North Carolina, Kay Hagan, in 2008. And that was the year of the Obama wave in North Carolina, the only time a Democrat has carried, Democratic presidential candidate has carried North Carolina in a long time. So I think that just shows that the state sort of trends red anyway in statewide races, at least federal races. I think generally, if you look at the history of North Carolina, the political history, it tends to want to send Democrats to the Capitol in Raleigh to be the governor, but send uh, Republicans to the Capitol in Washington. I mean, this is seven now out of eight that the Republicans have won. Uh, I think the Democrats need somebody that's more exciting, uh, basically. I mean, John Edwards came around in 1998 and won it. And Kay Hagan, I wouldn't say she was exciting, but she had Barack Obama there. And yeah, she he got, got carried, a lot of people. She got carried across the finish line in that race. So uh, just kind of on that on that front, is it time to stop saying North Carolina is a purple state? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, You know, I, I don't think young people and, and minorities – Voters turned out like they could have. And uh, when they do, it is a purple state. So I I would say it's a little red on federal races, but geography is destiny in this state and politically. I mean, look at the 13th district uh, and the Congress. I mean, Bo Hines was uh, Trump's choice and he lost to uh, a Democrat in in that big because it was in the Raleigh area. You know, yeah, I think I think it's. Still purple, uh, maybe not in Senate races so much and, and uh, federal statewide races, except for Congress. And that depends a lot on the candidates in the districts. But um, uh, Democrats prove on Tuesday that they can be competitive in, in closed house races in North Carolina. So I want to add one thing, Tim, you mentioned the word turnout. Another interesting thing from this election, turnout in Mecklenburg County was 44.7 percent. That stinks. Mm-hmm. I looked through the list. It was below average. Not only was it below average, I think I only counted maybe eight other counties out of 100 that had a lower turnout. If, if turnout had been, say, 55 percent, Beasley would have probably netted another 28,000 votes. That's not enough to win. But kind of looking through the, the, yeah. the map overall, the Republican counties uh, where Bud won, they were in the 50s and the 60 percent. In the urban counties, the Democratic strongholds, they just kind of lagged. But something, I mean, Charlotte was... 
Charlotte was pretty poor this go around. I think as more and more people move to North Carolina, and we've seen that in recent years, we've got an extra congressional seat out of it. I think that's going to help the Democrats because they tend to move to urban areas. They tend to bring their politics with them from other states. And uh, I think it's only a matter of time before North Carolina becomes a purple state in federal elections as well. I saw that, I saw that as a warning sign for the Beasley campaign. When the first returns came in yesterday, the first returns that were posted were the early vote and mail-in votes. And Beasley had a lead in the early vote, but she didn't build up a lead that she needed in that, which says that Democrats didn't come out to early vote as much as they might have or have in the past. With the way things are anymore, Democrats really need a a big lead in the early vote because Republicans are going to win on Election Day. All right, I'll ask one more about this race. The race with Sherry Beasley versus Ted Budd. Is it any different if Jeff Jackson had won the Democratic primary and went against Ted Budd? That's a tough one. Um, you know, I think Jackson is a more dynamic campaigner. I think that's fair to say. And um, he won his 14th congressional district seat in the Charlotte area pretty handily. He, he would have been up against this red rivulet or <laughs> a ripple in uh, in North Carolina, too. So it might not have been a different outcome. I think it would have been closer. Uh, I'm not sure it would have won. I mean, we have to keep in mind that Donald Trump carried North Carolina uh, in, in 2016 and 2020, uh, he also carried Ohio. So that Senate candidate, uh, his Senate candidate up there won. But it, look at other states where he lost in 2020, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania. Uh, his his guys lost, and partly because they were bad candidates. He picked them on the basis of loyalty, not electability. But the other candidates that he endorsed in Arizona, Nevada, in some of these other states – are struggling in Georgia, Herschel Walker. They're struggling right now because they weren't particularly good candidates. They may still win, but some other candidate who was picked for electability would have probably had an easier time with these Democrats. I think one thing I've been thinking about with the Jeff Jackson alternative scenario, um, I mean, there's kind of the obvious that he's a very dynamic campaigner, that people really respond to him. I think the other thing, too, I was kind of thinking about is he doesn't have much of a record to attack. I mean, one of the criticisms of of Jackson is that, well, he hasn't done much in the General Assembly. Well, that's true. But he also doesn't have this lengthy record to go through. And and, and Sherry Beasley did. You know, you could say it was unfair, but but that's how it goes. And they were able to just pour through years and years of rulings and go negative. And And it was was pretty devastating. And same kind of negative ads on record also hurt the Democratic uh, Supreme Court justice candidates. So... That, that can be a tough thing when you have a long record and you can find something to cast them as you know, weak the, on crime. The other thing about the Senate race, too, I, th- I think we can't forget all the money that was spent, especially on Bud's behalf. There was at least $70 million in outside spending on his behalf versus, I think, $20 million or so on, on Beasley's behalf. And so, you know, the airways got saturated with ads uh, against Beasley for Bud. So... I don't think you can really underestimate that either. I don't think Bud's a particularly exciting candidate either, but I think Republicans don't necessarily have to be. Uh, They get the benefit of the doubt from a lot of uh, voters in the state. We have a lot of small towns. We have a lot of rural areas. And so far, they have more voters than uh, people in the big cities, especially when the big city voters don't turn out like they could. All right, let's move on real quick. We're going to get back to North Carolina, but let's talk for just a minute about Florida. Um, Governor DeSantis, I think, won by nearly 20 points. You know, going into Tuesday, I think there was this question of like, well, will will DeSantis win by 10 or more? And then he just blew that out of the water. 
He did. And I think he's he's now a candidate for president. I think a lot of Republicans uh, would love to throw a farewell party for Donald (laughs) Trump and then say, welcome, welcome, uh, President DeSantis or. Uh, but but you know what? Donald Trump is not going to go away quietly. And and if he wants to run and, and DeSantis runs, too, you could have a real problem with the Republican Party being not united. And uh, that could hurt DeSantis if he is the nominee, I think. Well, DeSantis really had a better night than Trump did. I mean, yeah. he won by 20 points and uh, and and Rick, uh, Rubio won in Florida, too. So Republicans had a very good day and a good day and good night in Florida. Whereas a lot of Trump-backed candidates have lost in different states. Um, so uh, I would say DeSantis is riding high now. But, um, you know, I remember Florida, and I think Tim does. And, and uh, when Florida was a, a toss-up state, Florida could have gone either way. It was like Ohio. It's one of these states that used to be flippable by either party. And now it's they're both pretty solidly red. DeSantis carried Miami-Dade. I think he was the first Republican to do that. And he carried the Hispanic vote, which is which is gold to Republicans, you know, because they, the more Hispanics vote Republican, the fewer vote Democratic, and that's a problem for the Democrats. So I think he's he's going to be hard to, you know, they're not going to be able to say to him, wait, wait your turn, uh, Donald wants to run again. Of course, Donald Trump might be in prison uh, before long, too. Who knows? He, he also might announce for president yeah. next week, so... Could be a little, yeah, it could be a little dated right now. But I'll just say one more thing about DeSantis. I mean, he put himself at the front and center of so many cultural fights mm-hmm. um, about uh, critical race theory in classrooms, how LGBTQ issues are taught. Things like enraged a lot of national Democrats. Florida is not a deeply conservative state. I mean, it leans red, but he found overwhelming support for where he was taking the state and where he was taking um, his policy. And another thing about DeSantis that Republicans love. I mean, he Republicans love someone who sticks it to the media and is willing to fight and call the media out. And he does that better than anyone, uh, more effectively than Trump. He's got the same in your face attitude as Trump, but he doesn't have the personal baggage and the excesses that Trump does. So I think he would be more uh, attractive to a general election electorate in a way. I don't think Trump can win a general election unless he relies on all these election deniers who may be in office to help him. But you got to win the primary. And right now, I think Trump is the best in yeah, the best that's a tough one win the DeSantis. Republican primary. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's flip back to North Carolina again after that quick trip to Florida. <laughs> we have 14 congressional seats, seven to seven. Democrats have seven. Republicans have seven. Um, there is balance in Congress, but the clock is ticking on that, right? Short-lived. Yeah, I think by... 2024 will have completely different uh, maps. And a lot of these Democrats who uh, won will have a hard time getting reelected. They may not even run again. Well, we don't even know. I mean, it's Wednesday and we don't even know by how much Republicans are going to control the House in Washington. Um, It's certainly not the red wave that Republicans had hoped for. They're probably going to control it by I've seen as by as few as 12 seats, maybe six. But we but we do know the legislature here is going to redraw those districts and the Supreme Court now under control. Right. Republicans are going to say green light and it's just going to be a different. It's like somebody I, said, think? it's like somebody said, Jeff Jackson should rent in Washington, yeah, right. not buy a house. Yeah, yeah. I believe that was uh, said many times, including on this <laughs> podcast by Dallas Woodhouse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just want to say one more thing about that. I mean, the seven seven map, I think Republicans feel 
in Raleigh that the map that we ran on, we ran the selection on that produced the 7-7. I think they felt like that was a gerrymander in the Democrats' favor. You know, in the trial over the maps, there was statistical analysis from the Democrats themselves that showed kind of the most common scenario was a 9-5 map favoring Republicans when the computer ran it. I think they feel like the 7-7 map is unfair. Now, they are next year probably not going to stop at 9-5. I mean, they are going to go 10-4. Exactly. Uh, you know, they they will push their luck and they'll they'll press their advantage. But, um, you know, I think clearly the 14th district of Mecklenburg and Gaston County that Jeff Jackson won, that will look radically different. Um, Alma Adams is the 12th district seat will become even more safe. They'll pack more Democrats there. The 13th district that Wiley Nickel won, that will change, among others. So I think the ideal scenario is to have as many competitive races as possible. On the other hand, we have a state that's you know, purple split down the middle in some ways. So seven seven makes some sense, I think, to to a lot of Democrats, not so much Republicans. But well, and let's not forget the case of the U.S. Supreme Court too, Moore v. Harper, uh, which is scheduled to be heard this year in the Supreme Court, and they could take courts out of the picture altogether, whether they're yeah. Republican led or not Republican led, and that would give legislators in Raleigh and really across the country free reign to do redistricting or make election laws the way they want to. And I think Democrats are terrified of this independent state legislature theory. 20 Democratic U.S. senators have filed an amicus brief and the U.S. Justice Department, I believe, is going to speak against it in the U.S. Supreme Court. So that would be a big victory for the Republicans who uh, obviously have a uh, a, a sympathetic ear uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court these days. So let's switch um, gears to the General Assembly. The Republicans won a supermajority in the state Senate, fell one vote short in the uh, in the House. I thought what was one of the interesting things was one of those votes that flipped was House seat 73 in Cabarrus County. Larry Pittman's old seat, one of the most conservative members of the General Assembly. He did not run. It was an open seat. The Democratic candidate, Diamond Staten Williams, barely won this race. It featured probably the nastiest, most brutal ad uh, against the Republican who had, I think, in his 20s passed a bad check. And it was this was the commercial in which he was put up against a fake mugshot. Um, so in, in, in kind of an election where there was a lot of talk about deceptive TV ads and Photoshop, that one perhaps put the Democrat over the edge and, and pre- prevented and, a supermajority. And it ran back to back with an ad and maybe in the same ad featuring Roy Cooper uh, promoting the Democratic candidate. So he's he's all over this, too. He knew that if he didn't win this thing, uh, he, he would be irrelevant. I mean, he would his vetoes would be overridden routinely with a Republican um, almost supermajority in the House falling one vote short. There's going to be a lot of arm twisting. Yeah. Um, on the both sides and a lot of pressure from on Democrats, from Governor Cooper and his administration, and a lot of a lot of try to persuasion by the Republicans to try to get a Democratic vote or or more than uh, one Democratic vote. And I was looking back at um, in the first two years, uh, Governor Cooper was served the first two years of his term. He had a, a Republican supermajority in the legislature and he vetoed. Uh, 28 bills during those two years, and 23 of them were overridden. And then in the last four years, where he had a, did not have a, Republicans did not have a supermajority in either house, he vetoed 47 bills, and none of them were overridden. So it really makes a difference. I think he's going to have to earn his pay doing a lot of uh, negotiating and, and uh, lobbying with uh, maybe, say, suburban 
Republicans who are moderate and don't necessarily want to vote against or don't want to have a more restrictive abortion bill. But on the other hand, um, Tim Moore is probably going to go talk to some conservative or moderate uh, Democrats who may uh, join them on some of these uh, yeah, there still There still may be some conservative Democrats in the yeah. House. <laughs> One or two. Yeah, I can't see, though. I mean, to y'all's point, abortion will come up in 2023. Um, you could have you could have some Democrats vote with the Republicans on some issues. I can't see them on abortion. Not to say you guys saying they were, but I mean. I, well, I, I read a piece that one House member, well, two House members did vote to override a uh, uh, Cooper veto on abortion. One of those uh, didn't run again, but but the other one was reelected. So I think it it's going to be uh, it's going to be like what we saw in the Capitol in the, in the U.S. Capitol, where they had to negotiate constantly with to get in to line up enough votes. I think. I think abortion is just one issue that you know this, these numbers could make a difference with. I mean, you know, Republic, Republicans are going to try to push bills uh, to not require pistol permits. Probably they did last time. Uh, there are some environmental bills uh, and education funding in the governor's budget. All that could be uh, up for grabs in a in a closely divided legislature. I think the Republicans have to worry about overplaying their hand both in Washington and in Raleigh. I mean, if we get another HB two bill, new bathroom bill, I mean, they could be out of there in a couple of years too. Let's switch real quick. We've been talking about national, state level. Um, Mecklenburg County also had local races. The Mecklenburg County Commission, uh, not much news there. It'll continue to be all nine Democratic members as it has been since 2018. But the big news was that voters kind of took a blowtorch to the school board. (laughs) I mean, they uh, three incumbents lost. In a way, a fourth incumbent also lost. Trent Merchant in, in the South Charlotte seat has been on the board before. He wasn't a true incumbent, but he had served before. People knew his name. He also lost. You know, Ann Doss Helms, we, you know, talking on the station last night, she said, you know, she's covered this district for 20 years. She's seen a lot of anger, you know, kind of continual anger and frustration at CMS, but that very rarely ever translated to incumbents losing. But boy, it did last night. You know, uh, we talked on this show before we had a show about Moms for Liberty and um, and what influence they had in the District 4 race with Carol Sawyer uh, and Stephanie Sneed. And, um, you know, having seen these other incumbents lose tells me that there's more to it than just the Moms for Liberty factor. Remember, this is a school board that had the whole uh, issue with uh, the former superintendent, Ernest Winston, and giving him a raise and uh, and then firing him a year later and then giving him a big severance pay and then some other things. So and and scores at all this time, the scores are are down. Equity, the, the equity divide is um, as big as ever or bigger. And so there are a lot of issues at play in the school board race. Moms, of Liber- Moms for Liberty, though, needed a Democrat to beat a Democrat. I mean, these are nonpartisan races. But it's still a Democratic county. So, um, you know, Carol Sawyer got beat by another Democrat. Sean Strain is a Republican and he got beat, too, because he's an incumbent, I guess. And people are just unhappy with the way the school board's been running things. You know, it's a new day because, uh, as Ann said, they, they, they these elections used to be sleepy affairs where, you know, nonpartisan, where the incumbents would win. But this was a different year. I mean, they were now part of the, you know, as they ran in a different year with a lot more voters out there and, and uh, 
boy, they, they express themselves, I think. Usually these school board elections are in off years, much smaller turnout. The voters much more kind of aware of the candidates, much more knowledgeable. This year, we pushed it to 2022 because of the delays with the census. Member city council races were delayed from 2021 to 2022. Same with the school board. So all of a sudden you had these school board races where you've got thousands of voters who are coming out who may have never cast a ballot for school board before. And it, I think that's kind of one reason why we saw some kind of wacky, I think wacky is a fair word, some wacky results. And Steve, you talked about the county commission being all Democrat again after, you know, with a couple, at least one close race uh, or what was supposed to be a close race in that race. But um, the same thing happened in the legislative races in Mecklenburg County. If you look at those uh, John Bradford from Cornelius is still going to be the only Republican that Mecklenburg County voters send to Raleigh. Bill Brawley, who used to be the House Finance Committee chairman, very powerful role in Raleigh um, for his old seat and lost pretty handily. And um, and Wesley Harris, who represents that uh, southern, southeast Charlotte, um, south Mecklenburg area, won his seat. He's a Democrat. And, and so Democrats have just been doing better all, almost all over the county, especially in Southeast Charlotte. Jim, you mentioned about, you know, the Mecklenburg delegation and the legislative races. There's one Republican. I think that's interesting because if you look at it from a global sense in terms of the two parties, that's what the Democrats need to not be in super minority status. They need to win almost all the seats in places like Mecklenburg and Wake County. But the downside for that for the citizens, for the city of Charlotte, is that you have really no representation in Raleigh. You mentioned Bill Brawley being a powerful voice before. That's kind of gone. You know, the, the Republican leadership doesn't really need to pay attention to Mecklenburg County anymore. And right now, the city of Charlotte is trying to do this big push to, to, to do a penny sales tax increase for a transit plan. Who do they have? They, they don't really have an insider who can advocate for that. I'm not saying that it can't be done, but there is no one who you can go and sell this plan to, who can who can go talk to Phil Berger and Tim Moore and say, let's get this done. It makes it hard to do big things like and, that. And Brawley ran on that. He, he talked about it wasn't just a comeback. He wanted to be the liaison for Charlotte Mecklenburg to the Republican leadership. And in another year, I think that would have, or another time maybe, it would have been a strong argument. But Laura Budd said, wait a minute, let's talk about abortion. Let's talk about supermajority. We don't want to put the governor in that situation. So that had a much more appeal to a very Democratic, very blue Mecklenburg County. You know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a story about Dana Fenton, who, you, you know, Steve, Dana is the, the lobbyist for the city of Charlotte in Raleigh. And he's the one who translates Charlotte's agenda or tries, tries to push Charlotte's agenda in Raleigh. And the headline on the story was the loneliest man in Raleigh because uh, Charlotte is so blue and Raleigh is not. And I don't think that's changed fundamentally. I don't think Charlotte has many allies in the General Assembly who can make things happen. That's why you see some business groups bringing people like Phil Berger and Tim Moore to Charlotte to talk about them, to present it from the business point of view and to offer whatever they might offer. But somebody's got to listen to Mecklenburg County and Charlotte. And right now we don't have a lot of people. We talked about some of these court cases coming up. I think it's important to note Republicans won every judicial statewide judicial race on the ballot, including the big two for the state Supreme Court. They now hold a 5-2 majority on the court. That may be the biggest prize of all. Absolutely. Yeah, because the the state Supreme Court has a lot of say, at least at the moment, uh, over whether things that the legislature does 
will hold or not. And uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, redistricting, you're talking about abortion, you're talking about other things. Um, this gives a green light to the Republican legislature. And and I, I think it shows, too, that uh, we're at a situa- situation in in the state where statewide Republicans get the benefit of the doubt. And it, you, you need a for a Democrat to win, you need him to be sort of in a in a sort of cocoonish blue island like Wake County or Mecklenburg County to win. At least now, it, I think that's going to change. And the Democrats need to get more exciting candidates uh, in the future who know. I mean, Sherry Beasley was a little too judicial in her temperament. I think she worked hard, but it just didn't work out. When you talk about practical effects of all this, the Supreme Court just had a big case about the Leandro decision. Leandro is something that's been around for 20 years, um, involves uh, funding high-need schools across the state. And the Supreme Court in a four to three decision with the Democrats being in the four and the Republicans being in the minority told the state that they have to come up with billions of dollars for for schools. And in a Republican-dominated Supreme Court, that wouldn't happen. All right. So that wraps up. This was the 17th episode of the Inside Politics Election 2022 podcast. We started this to give a little more depth to the campaign issues and interesting people in politics. It has been fun. As for whether we'll continue with just inside politics, we will see. We're trying to figure that out. So stay tuned. We will certainly let you know. In any case, we've had a lot of great feedback, mostly positive, but also some negative. We welcome all of it. Thank you so much for listening. For Steve Harrison and Jim Morrill and Tim Funk, thanks again. We'll see you soon. 